Super good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Paul Benneman. I'm the youth and family pastor here. And two or three times a year, the elders ask me to preach. And today happens to be one of those days. Um, and so I'm excited to bring God's word to you and some something that he's put on my heart. Um, so I'm just going to get into it. And we're going to be in John 11 today. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them. If not, uh, the passage will be up on the screen today. We're going to talk about the death of Lazarus when Jesus rose him uh, from the dead. So John 11, if you're there, say amen. amen. If you're not there, say hold on. Hold on. Okay, well, hold on a second. You find it. John 11, it's after Genesis and before Revelation. <clears throat> John 11, verse 1 says this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead or been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I'm going to stop there for now. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, we want to know what it is that your spirit wants to teach us this morning through your living and active word. And so I pray that you would open our eyes and hearts and minds to see and hear and understand the good news of the gospel um, through this miracle that you did um, 2,000 years ago. But how does it apply to us today? Teach us right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the reason I chose this passage, and we'll, we'll continue the story in a minute, but the reason I chose this passage to teach on today at the first of the year is because as I've been reflecting on this past year, 2021, it's been a hard year. 
I don't know how you would kind of classify this past year, but when I think about it, it just feels heavy to me. And not even just because of COVID stuff, but there's just been a lot of heavy things um, in my life and in your guys' life. And one of the, being one of the pastors here, it's our job to walk with you guys, shepherd you guys through these seasons in life. And there's been a lot of heavy things happening uh, this past year um, just in our lives. And as a shepherd, as a pastor, I can't help but feel and carry some of that burden that you guys feel and carry. And it's heavy. It just, it just is. And so some of the things that you guys have been dealing with and that in turn um, I've been dealing with is the death of loved ones. There's been a few funerals um, that I've done this past year. Uh, marriage issues, substance abuse issues, depression, physical pain, sickness, deterioration of your body, cancer, not being able to do what you were once able to do, and that lack of identity and independence that you once used to have, and now it's just kind of gone. It's this new season. On top of all those, there's the spiritual battle that just weighs you down always, every day, fighting and pursuing Jesus in this spiritual battle, but it, it gets heavy. It gets tiresome, right? And it never ends. And then on top of all that, Jamie and I, we've been remodeling our house as well. And so that just adds this whole layer of stress that I was not expecting. I'm sure if you built a house or remodeled a house, you knew it, or now you know it. I didn't know that, but uh, we're in the middle of it. And so um, it's just felt heavy. Now I'm going to take a wild guess and say at least one of those things that I just mentioned resonates with you. If you're one of those odd people that would say, no, life's great. <laughs> I got no problems, right? Based on this passage today, I can say, I'm sorry for you. If life is perfect and you have nothing driving you to your knees in dependence on your Savior, I'm sorry. Because you think that you can get through life in your own strength, and you can't. And we were never designed to. But this story that we're looking at today um, doesn't pretend that the hurt and pain don't exist, right? But it also doesn't leave us in this grave of hopelessness, but it reminds us that our Savior is the resurrection and the life, and that he's able to bring life out of like these seemingly dead, hopeless situations. And so whatever you're feeling and thinking today, I want to focus our eyes on our Savior, Jesus Christ, and see what it is that he wants to teach us and reveal about himself and, and about ourselves as well. So um, just so you know, the way I'm going to kind of walk through this passage is uh, based on what I've been teaching through on Wednesday nights this past year. And we've been going through the book of John, a youth group, and I've been talking about who does Jesus say that he is? Not who the disciples say, who do other people think that he is, who do we interpret Jesus to be, but who did he himself say that he was? And so we're going to um, kind of look at it through that lens um, today. 
So who does Jesus say he is and what is he like? And the first thing that he says that we see in this, and this is point one, if you want to take notes, you can, um, but it's Jesus's actions are always loving. Jesus's actions are always loving. And amen, right? Now that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. And, and we're going to see in just a second why that's hard. And this first point, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on this first point, just so you know, because it is, it's, a, it's a doozy. So look at verses 5 and 6, again, at what we just read, John 11, and it says this, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, verse 6, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Have you ever noticed that before? You say, what? Jesus loved them. So he stayed where he was and let Lazarus die. He let Lazarus die and stayed awake because he loved them. It doesn't compute, right? How is that loving? Because Jesus healed countless strangers without any hesitation, and yet when his, one of his best friends is dying, he stays back and lets him die? Like, how is that loving? It seems the opposite of loving. And think about it from Mary and Martha and Lazarus's point of view. They knew they had this friend that could do the miraculous, and yet they're sitting back there for days thinking, where is he? We sent word to him. He's supposed to be here. Why is he taking so long? For days, just waiting and waiting. And there's one little word in there that makes this so shocking. And it's the word, so. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. I mean, it would make more sense if it said, Jesus loved his family, but when he heard Lazarus was ill. Or maybe if it said, Jesus cared deeply for them, yet he needed to stay for two more days. Or maybe if it said, Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters, however, he waited two more days, but it doesn't say that. The original Greek here says, so therefore he waited two more days where he was at. Again, put yourself in the place of this dying man and his sisters who knew what Jesus was capable of. Jesus didn't even need to be there. They knew that he could heal people from wherever he was at. He could just speak it, and that miracle would happen wherever. Jesus had done that. They knew that he was capable. They called out to him, and yet because of his love for them, he waited. Like, we need to really seriously consider what this means, because apparently there are times when Jesus out of his love for us, does nothing. And that's crazy. Apparently, there are times when Jesus, out of his love for us, he does nothing. As a result of his close friendship and deep love for these three people, he chose to wait. And by doing so, he chose to let their pain linger longer. Like, in no other context does this make sense, right? It's like if I were to say to my mom, my mom who's here today, hi, mom. If I said, mom, I love you, 
so I'm not going to come visit you. That's essentially what it's like, right? Or my wife, Jamie. Jamie, I love you. I love you so much, I'm not going to celebrate your birthday. Or the students here, high school and junior hires, I love you guys. I love you so much, I'm not going to be at youth group on Wednesday night. Who does that? Jesus did that. That's a hard pill to swallow. Because of his love for them, he waited. There's a saying that I've heard my whole life, and it goes kind of something like this. When we're going through times of struggle or pain or grief or sorrow, and we feel distant from God, that it's us who pulled away from God, not God who left us. Have you heard that before? Well, that might be true like 99% of the time. However, according to John 11, apparently sometimes you can have a relationship with Jesus, come to, it, come to him with a need, and not get any response back. Not because of anything you've done, but because his love for you means that he does nothing for a time. Maybe it's because he's planning something bigger and greater for your life. But right now, where does that leave you? Right now, that leaves you stuck in your pit. Waiting for him to show up. One of my best friends, Wade Lewis, is in that waiting right now. He's my age, 43, who grew up together here in Valley Center. Been friends since elementary school. And two years ago, right before COVID, he had a grand mal seizure and come to find out he had brain cancer. And so he had a brain tumor removed, but the cancer is such that they couldn't get everything. It's got all these little tentacles that go out into his brain. And he's still alive two years later. It's longer than they thought he would live. But he's begged, he's pleaded, he's prayed, God, why? God, if you had only been here, this brain tumor would be gone. I'd be healed, right? Where were you? His wife's prayed. His kids have prayed. I've prayed. His church has prayed. God, why? And we all have things like that. God, why would you let this happen? Where is God? Why is he choosing to be silent and stay where he is instead of coming and taking this away. Another example, two of my other best friends, Mike Taylor and Brian Peterson, they live in Louisville, Colorado. And that's where these fires have been um, this past week. Just like a few blocks from their house. Both of their houses were spared. They live like three blocks away from each other. They're evacuated. 991 homes burned in Louisville, and it's like a suburb. I mean, it's just house, 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 house. I tried to get this video to play that he sent me of just videoing the neighborhood, and it's just concrete pads everywhere, just gone, everything gone. Why? Why would a loving God do that? Well, he tells us in verses 14 and 15. And he says this, verse 14, Then Jesus told them plainly, 
Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Now, how could Jesus be glad that Lazarus was dead, and how was it loving to wait two more days? That's the question, right? And here's the answer and conclusion that I've come to. Because real love does what is best for the recipient, whatever the cost. Real love does what is best for the recipient, whatever the cost. Do you think Jesus enjoyed knowing the hurt and pain that they were going to experience? No, he didn't enjoy it. it. It killed him. It wrecked him so much that he wept. And we'll read about that in a minute. But for Jesus to love his followers, he had to do what was ultimately best for them to grow in their faith and deepen their belief in him. And that is what was best for them. That's what, that's, that was the most loving thing he could do for them. So he did it. Did they understand that at the moment? No. Mary and Martha both said, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't be dead right now. And we say the same thing. Lord, if you'd only been here, my house wouldn't have burned down. If you'd only been here, my brain tumor wouldn't be here right now. If you'd have been here, my friend would still be following you. My family member wouldn't have died the way that they did. My parents wouldn't be splitting up. I wouldn't have to face these addictions. Wouldn't have this, these fears this anxiety, this depression, this doubt. God, if you had been here, my family wouldn't be struggling the way they are. Lord, if you had been here, I wouldn't be having such a rough time right now. Lord, if you'd only been here. That's what we say. I've said that this past year. But what is the truth about God's waiting? Like, why does he wait sometimes? Because if waiting is the thing that will ultimately get our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes on our Savior and cause us to worship and glorify Him and deepen our roots of faith and belief in Him, then it's worth it. Then that is the most loving thing He could do. Did you guys ever know that spoiled kid growing up that got everything that they ever asked for whenever they wanted it? You know, the spoiled brat, the Veruca Salt, maybe in your school or neighborhood or whatever, there was that kid. Um, for me growing up, it was Oakley's. I wanted like the first version of Oakley's. I think they were called Blades. I wanted those. I wanted the Air Jordans. I wanted the Reebok Pump shoes. I don't know if anybody remembers those. I wanted the Nintendo, the 8-bit, the first version of it. I didn't get any of them. Nobody really wants to hang out with that kid that gets everything they want whenever they want, the spoiled brat, right? Why? Because their character hasn't been developed. Like, you, you don't want to hang out with the kid who's just a spoiled brat. They're no fun to hang out with. Because they only care about themselves and their stuff. They never had to wait. 
When you have to wait for something, it creates patience. It creates appreciation if you ever do receive that thing. Romans 5.3 says this, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I don't know how God puts those two words together, but he does. Rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's how suffering and love can be linked together. God is doing something in his children that nothing else will do. My friend Wade will tell you right now that brain cancer is the best thing that's ever happened to him. And I know that because he flew out here a few weeks ago and shared his testimony at youth group with all the students. And he said that. He said, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Even though statistically he's going to die from it, he wouldn't trade it for anything. Why? Because he loves his Savior more now than he ever has in his whole life. And I've grown up with him since like third grade. I don't want my best friend to die. But God's done something radical in his life. He's a new man. His wife, his kids would all say he's a new man. And that's what was best for him. That's what a loving father does, whatever the cost. Here's what my kid needs. Needs, not wants, needs. That's why I said at the beginning that I'm truly sorry for you if you have no trials or hardships in your life because you aren't being driven to your needs in desperation for your Savior. We're trying to get through life in your own strength. But don't think for a second that God's like this cold, heartless drill sergeant that's just on his throne saying, you need this, deal with it, trust me, I'm doing this for your own good. Let's continue reading and see what Jesus' heart is like. Let's pick back up at verse 21. It says this, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here. He's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing that her sister said. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. What does this reveal about Jesus? Number two, his heart is compassionate. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus. It was his plan all along. So why was he weeping then? If he knew what the outcome was going to be, why cry and weep? When it says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, does that sound like a drill sergeant to you? Deeply moved and greatly troubled? No. I'm doing what's best for you and you'll like it. I'm doing this because I love you. No, no, no. Deeply moved in Greek is the same word used for the snorting of a horse. Like what? Deeply moved is the same word in Greek used for the snorting of a horse going into battle and snorting and grunting. Now, why in the world would the Son of God, who has all the power in the universe, be snorting and grunting in grief and anguish for his friends? Because it wasn't supposed to be this way. Jesus, the Word of God, who spoke everything into existence, was there in the beginning, and everything was good and perfect and beautiful. That's how we designed it. That's how we made it. And it was good. And it was perfectly reflecting God's glory. But then what happens? Sin enters the world and scars and mars everything. Every relationship, every physical thing. Every desire of every person's heart was marked and tainted with sin. Death and pain and sadness was not the original design. And our Savior seeing the hurt and pain in his most beloved friends, it struck him to the core. He wept. And one commentator says this, he gathered up into his own personality all the misery resulting from sin, represented in a dead man and brokenhearted people around him. Isaiah 53.3 says, he was acquainted with grief. That's what our Savior is like. He's not up on his throne saying, just deal with it. I'm doing this because I love you. He wept. If you only saw things from my perspective, you wouldn't be crying at all. Mm -mm. That's not our Savior, right? He enters into our hurt and pain with us. Are you sad and lonely today? You have a Savior who resonates with your hurt and pain. Are you suffering he knows it, right? You don't have to fake it with God. You don't. He knows what you're really thinking and feeling, so tell him. He's not scared of your questions or your fears or your doubts. Tell him. He already knows them anyway. Another author said this, it is not an impassable, insensitive, unmovable Christ that is commended to you and me in Christianity. It is one who has entered into our grief and who understands our sorrows. Are you suffering? He knows it. Are you in tears? He's been there before you. Are you distressed? So was he. But he went on to overcome these things so that we might overcome them. Meanwhile, he's the one who understands you and to whom you may come. 
Jesus' tears are not a sign of weakness. They're a sign of compassion and love. And how do we know that? Because the people who were around him that day said that. They said in verse 36, says, So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Did Jesus love Lazarus before that? Of course he did, right? Did he love Mary and Martha before that? Sure. But it was the tears that moved the bystanders' hearts for them to finally see what real love looks like. But the pain and hurt and sadness are not the end of the story. Let's read the end of the story. Verse 38 says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. In the King James Bible right there it says, And he stinketh. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, because we know that dead people are hard of hearing, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So ultimately, why did Jesus do all of this? We said this story shown us that Jesus' actions are always loving, even if it hurts. His heart is compassionate. And then lastly, thirdly, his purpose is to glorify the Father, always. That is always Jesus' purpose, to glorify the Father. And at the very beginning of the story, Jesus started off in verse 4, telling us what was going to happen. He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for what? The glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then like we just read, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? At the beginning, if you were to ask Mary and Martha and the disciples, okay, how is Jesus going to glorify God or be glorified through this, my brother that is sick right now? What's Jesus going to do? I'm pretty sure that they would have said, well, he's going to get word that our brother is sick, his friend is sick, and he's going to get on a horse or a donkey or whatever and get over here to town as fast as he can, and right before he dies, he's going to speak or touch him or do rub spit in his eyes or whatever he wants to do and heal him, and everything's going to be great and merry and bright, right? That's what I think they would have thought. And God would have gotten some glory for that. But the way Jesus orchestrated all this was going to bring the most glory possible from it. It's like Jesus was wringing every last drop of glory from this situation. By the way, what does it mean to glorify God? We say it a lot. Oh, glorify God, right? What does it really mean? Here's a very basic definition. To glorify God is to acknowledge him as being who he truly is. Acknowledge him as being who he truly is. So if Lazarus would not have died, yes, a few people probably would acknowledge Jesus as being healer. He would have healed him, right? They would have acknowledged that about him. 
But how is God, but is God more than just a healer? Is Jesus more than just a healer? Absolutely, right? So how is God going to get the most glory from it? They needed to see more than just a healer. And that's why God allowed him to die so that they would see who God really is, who Jesus really was. So look about it, look at it through the eyes of Lazarus. How did God end up getting glory through Lazarus? Lazarus was the one, obviously, that died, was dead four days, rose from the dead. Four days later, did he just stay silent after that and just kind of go back to work as a carpenter or fisherman, whatever he was? No. What happened? They couldn't shut him up about it. He goes and tells everyone about Jesus Christ. You're not going to believe what happened. I was dead four days. I was in the tomb. I wasn't just like sleeping. I experienced God. I experienced his power. I'm a new creation. I'm a new man. He was a new person and you could not shut him up. God got the glory from that. It says in actually chapter 12, verse 11, that the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death because many of the Jews were believing in Jesus based on his testimony. Lazarus learned way more about God through him dying and being raised than he ever would have just by him being sick and being healed. That brought the most glory to God. How about from Mary and Martha's perspective? Do you think that death and waiting and resurrection had an impact on them? How could it not, right? It radically affected their lives. They stayed with Jesus the whole rest of his ministry, right? They were there when he died on the cross. They were there at the tomb when they put him in. They were there at the empty tomb. Jesus visited them afterwards. They were there when he ascended into heaven. They were radical God used them in amazing ways to affect who knows how many people's lives. God got the most glory through the way that he did it. How about the disciples? Remember, it was specifically to them that Jesus said, For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you, the disciples, may believe. Do you think Jesus was just guessing that this was going to have a big impact on their life? No, he knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew that this miracle would have a radical impact on their life and would go to produce us today. We are believers here, believing in Jesus Christ because of what happened in the disciples' hearts that day. That's why he wanted them to see it. How about the family and friends of Lazarus? It says throughout the whole story that many Jews came. It says that a few times. Those are the family and friends of Lazarus. Did it have an impact on them? Well, Jesus very specifically said when he was praying, he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Was Jesus just guessing this was going to have an impact on him? No, he knew exactly what he was doing, right? And exactly how he would get the most glory from this whole situation, these people's lives would never be the same after this day. He was wringing every last drop of glory from this situation. And one last way that God was glorified through this, right after this miracle, some people went and told the Pharisees about what Jesus had just done and rose Lazarus from the dead. 
And this miracle was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because right after this, in verse 53 of chapter 11, it says, So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. This was the miracle that put him over the edge. Ultimately, God would be most glorified through his only son being brutally killed for the sin of those that would believe in him. And in turn, he would be most glorified when he raised his son from the dead three days later, conquering the power of sin and death and hell. So you may say to yourself today, I understand that God works everything out for my good and his glory, and I'm glad that God knows what he's doing, but it's still hard to suffer. How many would say that? I would say that, right? I agree. I'm not discounting the pain. But what is the truth about our Savior? What's the truth? That his promise to you is that in every circumstance you find yourself in, somewhere in there you can know that he's still loving you as his child, even if you don't feel it. You may still be in the, so he stayed two days longer where he was. I don't know how many days, weeks, months, years, God's going to be silent on this thing that's troubling you. I'm not God. But what do we know from his word? It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. He is using this to get your eyes off of yourself, to remind you that he does love you as his child and to get you to glorify him through it and grow your roots of faith and belief in him deeper. And he's using this to do exactly that. So this past year was hard for me, <laughs> but what about this next year, 2022? How does the good news impact you and I for the next 363 days? Because it's always hard to suffer, but remember that Jesus Christ went through it before all of us. He is compassionate. He's not a drill sergeant. He asks us to suffer. He actually plans it. But he does not ask us to do anything that he hasn't done first. Nor does he ask us to suffer without at the same time promising to be with us through the trial. He weeps with you. Remember, he died but he rose, right? He suffered, yet he triumphed over sin and death and hell. And so will we, because his ultimate purpose and our ultimate purpose in life is for him to get the most glory from every situation. Is that your goal? That's my goal for this new year. God, how do you want to use the situation to glorify yourself? Whatever we're waiting for God to do, Father, how do you want to show me more of yourself and your nature in this? That's my prayer.